Uh, Hugh Weber is with us. Hello, Hugh. Hello. All right. First of all, I, what I want to do is just get an idea of who you are and what you do. So this is a three-hour session. You bet. Mm-hmm. So I'm a native of Millbank. I lived here until just after my sophomore year of high school, so 20-plus years ago, and um, went and did most of my education in political science. Uh, I was a kid that grew up thinking and wanting to be active politically and uh, running for governor and president. Uh, I did that for many, many years and professionally was a political consultant for about eight years uh, before realizing that I had the uh, call back home uh, to the state of South Dakota, the upper Midwest for sure, and uh, made my way through Minneapolis to Sioux Falls where I live today. Um, My work is no longer political in nature, but still very much focused on engaging communities. And so I run a consultancy that works with everything from, you know, banks in East Texas to uh, international child support agencies in Boulder to, you know, Jägermeister in the hills of Germany. <laughs> really? <laughs> and uh, on the side. Wait a second. Did, 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 <laughs> or in the midst. <laughs> did you need an intern to wander about the world with you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that what you're saying? Everything is possible. <laughs> nice. Uh, in the midst of all this, I, I started a nonprofit seven years ago called ODA, which... Uh, uh, what does that stand for? <laughs> seeks to connect the creatives of the Oda states of South Dakota, North Dakota, and Minnesota. You said and seeks to connect them? Connect them, celebrate them, catalyze them, get them started on projects, help them finish projects, help them see that there's enough in this region for them to live thrilling, fulfilled, full lives. And uh, we've done that for seven years. And uh, so that's my full-time job at this point through the end of the year. So the first year you did that, what was what did that look like? So the first year looked like a guy that had just left the only profession he had known since he was eight and had moved uh, from D.C. to Sioux Falls and had gotten married. And so every possible life change all in one window of time, uh, feeling very disconnected. And while I was on the East Coast, I heard time and time again the, the kind of default uh, evaluation of this region as being really hardworking or having great work ethic. And not that I see that as negative, but I think this region as people are so much more. It, they, it would never, you, know, you walked down the streets of Philadelphia or D.C., probably L.A. or San Francisco, no one would say, boy, those South Dakotans <laughs> sure are innovative. And it drove me crazy, especially, so, as, especially as I returned. So the idea was I believe there were 1,500 world-class creative individuals in this region. Uh, amongst the 4 million that exist in South Dakota, North Dakota, and Minnesota, they're just spread out it's like needles in a haystack. Very, very hundreds of thousands of square miles of haystack. And if we threw big enough events and if we brought big enough thinkers to the region, those people would take time from their busy lives and come together in the same space. So you kind of looked at that, the idea that people are just good hard workers as almost a uh, a, a little box that they were being put in. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's a default. I think it's a default, and by virtue of being a default, becomes negative. It's like, and I, and I say this kindly, it's like the boy that's described as nice in high school, right? Mm-hmm. It's because you don't. They're not the cute boy. They're not the smart boy. They're not the <laughs> they're athletic. Nice. They're not the athletic boy. They're just nice, and right. that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means you don't know what else to say. And so when you say someone, you know, when you say a region, man, they're hardworking. You're disregarding the guy laying asphalt in Is LA. Is that a cop-out answer then? It's a, it's a, to me, it's a total, it's a cop-out. It, it's what you say when you don't know what to say. Because we're a lot of things, including hardworking, but we're a lot of other things as well. And so Oda grew out of that desire to both 
remind this region that that was the case, but also to show the world that we were something more than that. So that first year before we even had speakers committed, we sold sponsorships for an event that didn't really exist. So you, you marketed an event with no content. Yeah. I, I, I sat down and said, I'm holding this event. And they're like, who's speaking? And I was like, we'll be announcing that soon. And they're like, and how many people are attending? And we're like, we'll know, a couple. We'll know soon. <laughs> and fortunately there were a lot of extraordinary organizations. Uh, you know, one that jumps to mind is Augustana, uh, now university, Augustana college, uh, that said this kind of thing needs to exist in this region. And we believe in that vision and we'll support it even though we don't know what it's going to look like or if anyone will show up. And, uh, and from there, you know, we did three, four years, uh, on our own. And every year when we started, it was either, we would lose our house or the event would be a success and we didn't lose our house. And then four years in the Bush foundation out of St. Paul agreed with us that there was something there and have given us a um, significant grant to spend the last three years extending it. So you started Oh nine. We did. And until 13, you were just beating the pavement for funding? Self-funded, yeah. So we would make commitments after the Were first, you a nonprofit at the time no, or no? We weren't. It was just part of my consultancy. And so we would announce a lineup because we found out it helps to sell tickets if you tell people what they're coming to. <laughs> come to a concert. Yeah, it's going to be someone else. <laughs> yeah, but just come to be, the concert. It'll be a great, be awesome. be a great band. <laughs> Show up. Uh, so we would sign contracts not knowing if we were going to sell any tickets or have any sponsors. And you know we would be... Some years, $50,000 deep uh, before we knew if any of that was going to happen. And it was, uh, it was extraordinary risk that was only possible because I have a patient and beautiful wife. Um, <laughs> but there was a certain point where we reached after that four, fourth year that um, if we hadn't had support like we saw from the foundation, uh, we couldn't personally continue to take that risk. And you know, it grew with our family uh, to a point that that was the case because we had... Emerson was born kind of right in the midst of Oda being born. And uh, she was headed to... Well, so you had two kids right away. Excellent. (laughs) We did, very much so. But it it was a situation where uh, I couldn't take that kind of risk today like I took at that point. I mean, I'm known for taking risks and embracing risk, but not that kind of risk. Back then, were you known for that? Uh, I think or, or, or did I think that so. kind of start that piece of you as being this? I think uh, that certainly cliff jumper <laughs> rebrand, rebranded me as this trailblazer, right? I, I think because the political thing had started when I was eight, it wasn't seen as Hugh as a risk taker. It was seen as Hugh as maybe a big thinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there wasn't much risk because it was building on itself. And you work for a senator, and you work for a president. Okay, so then builds. let's go there and, for a minute. And so is that what you did? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was really fortunate. And, you know, my my political career started here making phone calls for a school board candidate and uh, extended very quickly through the help of, you know, state legislators like Harold Helverson that would let me visit his office when when I was in Pierre. And, you know, then I went and got a, uh, a degree in Philadelphia and came back and had a job with the governor and then worked at the state party and then worked you know st- uh, for Senator Thune and then went and took a presidential appointment which led to a governor's race which led to a national campaign which led to you know being deputy director of the president's inauguration and and it's this kind of thing where it was going to continue to build and or crash and or you got off the roller coaster which is ultimately what i did in 2006 um what side or or i guess i should ask how did you um 
get onto the political side that you worked on? What was that a deliberate decision? I mean, did, do you did you fall on that line ideology, or did it just work out that that's who was available? Yeah, I, I don't know, and I, and I say this with a little anxiety. I don't know that I was ever an ideologue. Mm-hmm. I think I just liked a good speech and uh, <laughs> and and liked uh, and liked the idea that if you stood up and spoke up and had a perspective and could convince other people to support that, that you were a leader or mm-hmm. that you could be elected to, to represent. And so I think I fell in politically because I came from a conservative, uh, faith driven background. I fell politically into a more conservative party posture. And, and I'll say it's the tricky thing now about being just a private citizen <laughs> is that I don't know that I embrace the vast majority of where, you know, um, any political party kind of assigns itself. And so it's, it's fortuitous that I no longer make a profession off that. And that was a little bit what was happening in 2004 when I was stepping away. It was, it was two things. It was recognizing that I spent a lot of time supporting people that I didn't necessarily respect because they were quality candidates and had the ability to raise funds. But then it was the second piece of recognizing when, when I was a kid and, and when I was in college, whether it was Millbank or Clark or, or later Watertown, I'd come home and my dad would drive me around town and we'd see all these tangible physical signs of an electrician and carpenter's legacy, whether it was a you know cross on the side of American Lutheran Church over here, or, you know, um, lights he'd put on a, on a football field. There was something tangible about that. And I had been part of directly or indirectly spending tens of millions of dollars and couldn't point to a thing that I'd created that was lasting. And so for me, that's, that, that was a reason to step away, but it was no small part of it was recognizing there were a lot of things that the people that I was helping elect would support or would uh, push that I wasn't necessarily supportive of, but that wasn't my job. My, my job wasn't to, um, be in policy. My job was to elect political candidates. So you were the guy um, getting them in the office. That, and that's, I mean, th- th- that and was that's, your goal. And that's the part that I, I think I was good at. You know, mm. I spent a year in USDA as a presidential appointee under the Rural Development Agency, and I enjoyed that, and I think I did good work. But I think that it wasn't the same level of passion that I brought to a political campaign or, or brought to you know, field operations, I could get really, really, really excited about having a record number of people in a parade in Cranzburg on the 4th of July. And I couldn't necessarily get as excited to hand out tens of millions of dollars Mm -hmm. across the country on behalf of the federal government. So I was never a bureaucrat. I was a political consultant. How has your, uh, you know, the, the 20 ish years you spent in that world, how has that shaped your non, you know, your, your, your views of the politics now, um, you know, and from the outside, how has that shaped that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it makes me in some ways a little bit more aware. I don't think it makes me more cynical. It just makes me more aware of the mechanism. Like I, I, I think we would be, um, you know, it's, it's a well-worn analogy, but we'd be much less likely to devour hot dogs if we had to watch them be made. And I know how the hot dogs are made in this case. <laughs> and so, it's but, good. but, but, but I'll say the other side of it is I, on a national level, all the tomfoolery of this, this presidential cycle, uh, it makes me less interested in that, but it also reminds me, you know, I would leave DC middle of the week, listening to the the talk shows talk about how divided our country was. This is 2004. 
and I would fly to Wisconsin uh, or Ohio. I'd be in you know Tallahassee or Lansing, and uh, those folks didn't really know if their neighbors were Republicans or Democrats. They were working a couple jobs to try to get a little bit more time with their kids or an extra day of vacation uh, that summer, some time on the boat or you know whatever you know or a boat itself, and. They uh, they worked really hard about for things they believed in, and but they it wasn't as um, pervasive uh, this idea of how divided they were. I don't I don't I don't necessarily believe that. I think it's progressed there further. But what it does for me those twenty years is reminds me that if if a small group of people get really passionate about something, well intended or not, and you saw some of that, you see some of that here locally with the. Uh, the concerned citizens issues that to me is tremendously exciting. Even if I fundamentally disagree with someone is that they would get excited and, and, and be passionate enough that they would rally their friends, convince them as well, and that they would do things that lead to change mm-hmm. or stand in the way of change. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just yesterday there were huge riots in California. Yeah. Um, just simply for the fact that there's a guy speaking that they don't like. Yeah. That is insane. Isn't it? Like, like, well, to to go to the point where you are destroying someone else's property because you don't agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but uh, at the same time, that's that's the heritage that our country is built on. And at some point, you know, it's not my place to judge whose revolution it is and and what the timing for that revolution should be. So, yeah, it's terrifying. I'm glad it's not happening on the streets as <laughs> he falls. Right. Although, come June, who knows? Oh, man, I know. Right? Give right. us time. Uh, but, you know, for for me, uh, that's that's part of it. I mean, I think people, if they destroy property, should be held accountable for that. But I think the ability to make yourself heard is, mm-hmm. is a fundamental um, concept of our, our democracy. And that doesn't, it always isn't always fun. And yeah. It isn't always clean. And it isn't always safe. Um, but I think it's, it's critical. What got you into YouTube? YouTube? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> for a while you were kind of known <laughs> a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to the point of having a couple bestseller books yeah. come out of it. Yeah. So uh, I got into YouTube because I <laughs> woke up one day, a hundred days before my wife was going to give birth. Oddly enough, she'd been pregnant for six months before that. I had somehow missed And you just didn't realize that. <laughs> I had, I'd missed the first couple of trimesters. The light bulb went on at a hundred days was, left. A hundred days left. I was like, holy crap. This means I'm becoming something too. Like she's not just uh, gestating over there. Like I am going to become a dad and I have no idea what that looks like or how to do that or how to transition you know anyone that knows my dad knows he's this gentle uh um focused present sort of guy and i may be none of those things and he was supportive even though he didn't you know an electrician that got a kid that wanted to be a political consultant and somehow managed still to support me through that I wasn't sure that I could be nearly as uh, as engaged. Not to mention, I'm the least manly man on the planet. Like, uh, <laughs> I had a guy try to tell me uh, this week that he, you know, I, I'm not handy. He's like, I got the hood up and was changing this or that, and uh, and realized I couldn't do this or that. And I was like, buddy, I had to have help at the gas station last week to get my hood up. <laughs> like, I was changing windshield fluid. Right. Like, I'm the least manly man on the planet. Like, And I've got a brother, Luke, that can, like, touch cars and heal them. Like, he would have heard the belt outside yeah. and just touched it. And <laughs> would it, have been, been it would have been fine. Um, so, so I posted an initial video that essentially said, I have no idea how to do this. Do I need to buy more colorful sweaters? Should I learn how to wrestle a bear? Like, I don't Did know. Did you know what, at the time that it was a girl? 
Did you guys uh, find out early? I don't, uh, we, we did, but I don't, I'm guessing by that point, we probably did know it was a girl actually. Um, if not just right in that window mm-hmm. of time, but we did find out in advance. Um, but I posted the video and within something crazy, I don't remember what the numbers were, but like 72 hours, three days, it had been in like 20 countries and viewed you know, all these times. <laughs> wow. And, uh, you know, it was early enough in the general public version of Facebook and other things that just kind of caught fire. And so I kept doing them and, you know, I'm a jolly enough guy and I enjoy the camera enough and, you know, prone to melodrama and thank you, Donna Reedburn for all of your <laughs> dramatic support at Melbourne high school. Uh, but uh, it really caught fire. And we did, I mean, it, it is crazy looking back now because that would have been 2009. It would have been right in the midst of some of the Oda stuff. You know, we did uh, partnerships with Ford, Nintendo, Microsoft, Nokia, Carnival Cruise. Um, gosh, what else? So many other things. And not to mention like a d- great code, like a dozen baby companies. Like, And I would continue to do videos. One of my favorite wow. videos is this. And oddly enough, we have some allergy issues in the family now that it actually worked out with this company in Maine sent us these like teething biscuits that were like essentially free of everything. They were taste free. They were gluten free. They were dairy and, and soy free merely for chewing. And on. like, I literally like sat and like was, there was a video of me like eating teething biscuits, uh, which is a terrible way past time, but it, it was a lot of fun. And you know, and I think it, it, um, it was a willingness to be, completely straightforward and transparent about the fact that I didn't have a stinking clue. Like there was a video where I was very seriously and I had an intern at the time that would film me because he found it funny. He now has two kids, so he knows what's up. But at the time he was single and I had to put together the crib and it took me the better part of a day. And, and like there would be there were all these cut scenes of like me wrapped in bubble wrap. Cause I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> and just this mountain <laughs> of pieces of crib, but it, it was, it was incredibly validating. And by the time my daughter was born, uh, we, uh, Amy was in labor for, um, you know, over 24 hours. And we literally had people all over the world sending tweets of support when they knew we had gone to the, the hospital. And, um, it, formed a key part of Emerson's birth story and, and leading up to it, but also the first couple of years of her life. You know, we, we kind of continued with some of those videos early on and then wrote the books and uh, it's, it's been quite an adventure, but this yeah. Is, uh, this is the classic moment which uh, people in the business call a step too far. Uh, this is where dude to dad <laughs> crosses lines and becomes a lot more like one of those Johnny Knoxville TV shows. So this is from June 17, 2009. <laughs> yeah, there it is. And I know what video that is without any question. Um, that's the video that I was years later. This is a couple of years ago, so 2012 or 13. I was presenting to some sort of a community development conference. And this kind, gentle, little, late, little old lady walks up to me in her early 70s, late 60s probably. And. She goes, I've seen videos of you. And I was like, this can, this can go nowhere positive. And she said, I've seen videos of you using a breast pump. And I was like, uh, well, now my face matches my red shoes. And I'm going to slowly back away from this conversation and hope it doesn't happen again. But yes. So uh, we won't go much farther there. But how did that turn out? It is extremely. It's extremely painful. And the, the best part is midway through that video, my wife steps 
she's not in the frame. She refused to be visible in most of those videos, but she (laughs) (laughs) steps into the edge of the frame. You hear her voice and she recognizes that I don't recall the settings, but that it was essentially on a one of 10 and that she usually had it on a 10, you know, seven minutes at a time, four times a day or whatever. So then she decided to crank it up. So she turned it up and it was something magical. I saw that. I saw the divine. There were angels. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow where do you go from there yeah yeah i'm not that. sure <laughs> um so how long did you bro- go with that i mean you have st- there are stuff up there's videos up there of emerson as a little girl when yeah. did you kind of phase that out we it was like a, she was maybe one or two um she's seven now uh, and it just was clear that it was no longer voluntary or it was no longer like she wasn't driving the process. Cause early on she, I mean, and you should, you know her now, she's a bit of a ham. She would like the camera to be on more frequently now, but there was this window when she was like two where it was like, I would go to grab the camera and she would go to hide. And the thing is, Finn is like that. You know, my son is uh, three years old now. He's never wanted the, the camera pointed at him and always has this, you know, goes to some default scowl when the camera comes out. Uh, if he had been the first child, it would have ended a lot sooner. But it was this realization that uh, if she wasn't driving it with me, if it wasn't a partnership, uh, which it really was for a while, uh, that then it probably wasn't a thing to continue doing. And it was super time consuming on top of it. I mean, they aren't, uh, there's no world class uh, film going on there, but it still took time to do it and think about it and plan it and edit it and all of those things. So. I mean, it was a, it was a couple of years and then there was a, a window of time. And I don't remember if it was a year or two before we got reached out to by the publisher asking us to write the book. And it was like, so they really? came to you. Yeah. Really? It, and, and it's a, a great story. So Familius is this incredible uh, publisher, a publishing house uh, led by a gentleman named Christopher Robin. Uh, and huh. uh, he was a, a big city publisher that kind of decided that he wanted more time with his family, but also wanted to do things that were really rewarding and, and, uh, and added positive, uh, things to the world. And so he started Familius, which is specifically focused on making families happy and is content that, and books that are intended to be positive pro family, um, publications. And Chris has, Christopher has like nine kids. So that helps. It's got a built in audience. Did they find you online and then approach you? The one of the very last projects he did at his old publishing house, uh, the larger scale one was uh, the author wanted to call the book dude to dad and which is the name of the website and the books we did. And they did their due diligence and said, there's no way like this guy has built this website and has 80,000 followers on Twitter. And like, we can't, we can't name it that. And so when Christopher started familius, he said, and, uh, and he's a pretty genuine guy. Uh, that uh, the first thing he wanted to do was seek out dude to dad and see if he could get him to write a book. And so they, they, they sought us out and um, you know, we wrote two books. We've got one book left on the contract, uh, which I need to get started on. Please stop listening at right. this point. Um, uh, but uh, it was all driven by the fact that he saw the opportunity for this blog and what it had been to be a uh, kind of a series of, of books. One that would be the blog reformatted, which is the first book, which is really kind of short chapters. And, and a lot of it draws from blog posts and videos. Tr- so you know, was it more than just the YouTube side? Yeah. So there was, there was a, there was a website and, and it was very much a Twitter uh, um, 
audience as well. Cause again, I think we were at like 80,000, 83,000 followers on Twitter, kind of at its mm-hmm. pinnacle. And so the, the first book was more blog style content. I did a lot of guest writing at that point too. Like people were asking for that type of content on their blogs. Uh, the second one was really tweet driven. Uh, so we actually solicited from the, uh, due to dead Twitter network that people could share content or share uh, tweet length bits of data vice. That's called wisdom for dad. And that's the book that actually really went extraordinarily well and was like in Sam's club and whole foods and all these places, which is pretty cool. Uh, and sold uh, in, um, we had the books rights sold in Russia, which there are all these weird Russian ads of, I think it's Finn and I had a picture and I've got like this fake mustache on (laughs) and Cyrillic Russian characters all around me. Lord knows what they say. So that's currently out there. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I've got a copy, a copy of this book, which is awesome. I gave one to my dad and I kept one. The publisher sent me two. It was published in Turkey, which is really strange. It was published in uh, Australia and New Zealand. I recently did a a radio New Zealand, which is their NPR uh, interview uh, from afar. Uh, It was, there was one other place. It doesn't matter. Um, but, uh, it was, it was pretty extraordinary and what a crazy experience. Mm -hmm. At one point we were having talks about a potential TV show, which is even crazier. Um, it was all, all over the board. It was, it was kind of an awesome experience, but it was also, it was also a stage, right? I am no longer in a position to wisely advise new dads because I think things have already changed so much in, you know, nine years, eight years, uh, some of those broad universal things are there, but mm-hmm. the uniqueness of, you know, people that now have baby webcams, which might have existed right then. I certainly didn't watch my kid on a webcam <laughs> in its bed and post photos of it right. onto Facebook. Like, <laughs> so I think, I think some of those, some of those realities have changed and the presence of being in front of a phone has accelerated and all of those things. So I, I it, it was a stage and, and we, I've got this one one book that I've got to got to figure out, but uh, to me, it's it's a stage that's wrapping up. It's fascinating. So that was kind of a. I mean, it was a content driven. It was very tailored to an idea. Yeah. Is writing a big passion for you still? It's so it's so hard because I I, I want to say yes and and yet the limited amount that I do, it would show that my treasures elsewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's true. Uh, And, and, and so I, there are a few things I enjoy more than having my words well-groomed and edited in, um, in print. And so whether that's an Oda manifesto or a, a letter supporting the Sioux Falls flag initiative or a dude to dad book, those things bring me insane, disproportionate amounts of joy but I find that process completely laborious. Like it, it, it is, it is something. And my little brother, Adam, another Milbank native, who's um, writing a book on prayer. Uh, he's a pastor in Sioux Falls. He, uh, he's just wrapped up the first major draft of his book. And he too, like I've never seen such a crisis of confidence and just such a painful process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, if you're not a natural writer, it, it can be really challenging. So why does Millbank matter so much to you? I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a fair question. You know, um, I left here in 1994, 1994, came back 
Uh, I'd been here for a couple of funerals, a couple of weddings. <laughs> but but came, that was the last time you lived in, in this Lived town. here in 94. <laughs> yeah, came back uh, for the first time really intentionally in 2014, uh, two years ago. Actually, two years ago within a couple of weeks because it was May of 2014. And I came back to speak at the um, economic development uh, annual meeting. And uh, I really struggled with the presentation. I think they wanted me to talk about ODA. And I felt like I could either come back and talk about, like, here's the successes I've had and here's ODA and aren't you proud that this is the foundation. Or I could give a much more kind of honest and I, I th- hopefully revealing presentation on, <laughs> you know, I was, I was a kid who was given every opportunity here and uh, saw this community as such a place of possibility. I found out since then that not everyone enjoyed the same uh, utopic kind of childhood that I did here. And that's, that's good to know, but mine really was pretty perfect. And Milbank was such a positive thing. And I felt like it had given me everything. And like I told him that night, the only thing it didn't give me was a ticket back home. I think that as a, at the time I was 36, 37 maybe. And uh, I really felt that by even living back in Sioux Falls, I'd somehow let down all the people that had invested time and talent and resources in me. And, uh, and so to be back in Millbank talking felt like it was a, on some level a public shaming, not a, not a celebration. And that's really problematic. It's really problematic that regardless of talent or potential or possibility of the people that grew up here, that somehow if you stay here, it's a compromise or mm-hmm. at best or at worst, it's a, it's a reflection of failure. And so I shared that and I shared a whole bunch of other things. Once you get, get me started, it's hard to get me to stop. And uh, by the end, you know, the, the economic development com- committee and others essentially said, this is great that you unpacked all this baggage. Um, now what are Thanks you going to, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> <laughs> and so I started coming up a couple days a month, uh, for the last two years. And, you know, at the beginning, um, at the beginning, I'll say there was a part of it that was about paying back a debt. There was a part of it that was about feeling an obligation to a community that had given me, I mean, I got to go out into the world and elect presidents and write best-selling books and, you know, none of it has resulted in riches or fame, but it's resulted in a really good life. And, uh, and so part of it was about paying some sense of debt back, but then it transitioned, uh, you know, a year ago, a year and a half ago, it transitioned into something more than that. You know, this is a community where I was raised and, and where I believe a lot of people were that absolutely anything was possible. It was a, it was a, as I've said many times now, it was a place for possibility. And if that meant you were an illustrator who wanted to draw comic books, you could do that here. And if you wanted to be the next NFL football star, that could happen here. And if you wanted to be a musician or a journalist or a marketer or whatever it might be, that was, that was possible. Um, and I, I think that in the 20 years in between, much like a lot of rural communities, a lot of smaller town, hometowns in general, um, that conversation had shifted a little bit. I don't, I don't think this ever became a deficit thought community or a dying community. We talked about that today with the group I met with. Um, it's not a dying community. It never, never was. And I certainly haven't played any part in changing it if it, if it was, but it definitely felt like it was standing still. Uh, it felt like things, things had shifted in that way where maybe it wasn't a place for a certain kind of people or that, you know, some of our newer residents weren't as, 
Milbank as others, which I think is a problem. And so it became a desire to contribute something substantive. Some of the lessons I had learned and some of the talents that I think maybe I was given uh, to build a community that is a community that is its best possible version. Because I've always felt that when I'm here, I roll down the windows, it drives my family crazy. But like we cross into Grant County and get to south of Milbank. Do you scream out the window? I've rolled down the windows and I breathe deep (laughs) and ask my children if they can smell the possibility. (laughs) Which feels like something like The Rock would do or something. But like for, for me, for me, like I feel different when I, when I cross, uh, when I cross into the, the, the Milbank area in general. And I want Milbank to feel as good about itself as I feel about it. You know, I was strolling on over here, listening to the new Beyonce album, which is pretty angry and pretty aggressive. And <laughs> <Kinda>. uh, <laughs> there's a song where Beyonce says, they don't love you like I love you. And I was walking through town today thinking, you know what? I'm not sure anyone loves this community as much <laughs> as I do, but they do. Uh, there are a lot of people that do. And, and, uh, when you love something as much as I do, Milbank, you do just about anything to, to make it be uh, even better. So what, I mean, was it anything other than the schooling you chose that took you away? You know, I th- yeah, I, I think politics in general was going to base me in, uh, probably in DC or at least bounce me around mm-hmm. a lot, which it did. Uh, I think coming back, the reason to go to Sioux Falls, which seems crazy in in hindsight, but I had a, I had a job there when I when I came back and we got married. But it's funny that uh, Amy at the time, Amy grew up in Castlewood, uh, just up the road here, and uh, she was living in Watertown at the time we got married, and was just like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna fit in in Sioux Falls. Like it's so big, will I ever fit, find myself around? I wish we could just stay in a smaller community. And I was like, eh, I don't see that. I don't see Were that. You- were you done with your political career at that time? Yeah, more or less, more or less. Yeah, I, I did some work in 06 and 08, but but those were the last waves, not mm-hmm. not, not not the central waves. Um, so your political career started right after college? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, so I worked for the governor of South Dakota, and so while that was... So you were back pseudo, in South Dakota after I, college? I was, I was, yeah. I was in Pierre for a, a time in um, uh, Watertown for a time. And and so I, I don't have a good explanation other than I wasn't certain that being in Millbank was what Millbank wanted for me. Because the reality is, if I thought there was a, a place here, I, I I may have come here in Sioux Falls in, in the end in 2006. But then you know I'd I'd it'd been 20 years, 18 years at the time or whatever, uh, and so it'd been a long time. Um, and so I think there's part of that too. But I walked into that meeting two years ago. And it was essentially all of the same people. Everyone, including myself, had either lost or grayed their hair and maybe <laughs> expanded their waistline slightly, <laughs> me more than others, most likely. Um, but uh, it was the same group of people, and it was this real quick recognition that this is still a place where you know those things are possible. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I'm not nostalgic, with the exception of maybe Tommy's Popcorn, which has now come up from the ashes. Uh, I'm not nostalgic about what Millbank was because I know that, I don't know, I know that I'm not going to, you know, be in debate class with Doug Cheddar or, you know, drama with Donna Reed Byrne or, you know, playing football again. That That's what my experience was last time. Mm-hmm. It's that, 
I think the people here genuinely want to continue to improve it. And I've always said that small towns are such a, uh, an extraordinary place to make an impact and make a difference and create change. So what keeps you away currently? I mean, in very practical terms, what keeps me away is my son is part of a Montessori school that he'll have through elementary school. I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers. I think my wife is concerned about moving to a, a, a small town at this point, which is the irony of her being the one concerned about moving mm-hmm. to Sioux Falls. But because she knows that I grew up here and because she knows that uh, these relationships, I mean, I, I can spend a full day in town and not actually recognize anyone. And all of them could probably tell me what my brother's middle name was, you know, and, and, uh, <laughs> Amy, and I mean that in the most positive ways, but I think Amy fears that a little bit as an outsider, you know, if she's not, uh, that she'll only be recognized as Hugh Weber's wife and mm-hmm. not the extraordinary person she is. And so I, I can understand that. I would have some of the same hesitations about moving to Castlewood <laughs> that and Castlewood's not Melbank. What would make coming back more of a reality? I mean, what is it that Millbank could do if there's anything? I mean, I know the reality of just your personal life is, you know, the the main point. But what could, if anything, what could Millbank as a community do to be more uh, appealing, uh, more, I don't want to say accepting, because I think they are, but, you know, more realistic, I guess. Yeah, I think I think Millbank's doing a lot of those things that that I'd be looking for. They had a lot of those things that myself and others my age and and beyond would be looking for. I think they need to be better at telling those stories. Mm-hmm. I think they need to be more consistent and connected about how they're engaging. You know, I think that, uh, and this is these are symptoms of so many small towns that so much energy is placed on the perception of uh, landing a large employer or manufacturing something. And I think the future is so tied to finding tiny groups and individuals of talent and, and making them feel as recruited and welcome. You know, I think, I think Melbank's doing a lot of those things is at the starting gate of a lot more. Um, But I think those are the things that convince, I think connection on just a, basic human level connection is so critical. And I think doing more of the things that we've done for generations and, and reigniting those things that have fallen to the wayside. I have over the last two years had a host of conversations about like potluck dinners and welcome wagons. And like, these things worked because they were basic to humanity and you didn't need uh, an iPhone app to, you know, take someone a um, you know, welcome basket and thank them for coming to the community or, you didn't need, you know, the internet to invite your neighbors that you hadn't met over for a terrible tater tot hot dish, which I think is the bane of the region's culture. <laughs> hot uh, dishes, they say. Oh boy. <laughs> well, that's, and that was actually my next question: yeah. Where does that connection start? I mean, is that a um, a government, you know, the, a, a local city government mandate, or should that really happen at the block level? So I, th- I think it's both. I think on the, the larger level, and I'd say on a state level and probably a national level, is thematically and values-wise to talk about connection in a, in a bigger, more intentional way. You know, on, on the business side, we talk about it in terms of networking, which I think is one of the great fallacies. And we say, like, to be successful at business, you need to network. And what they mean is go to social events that, you know, you drink alcohol at and hand out your leftover business cards. And I'm going to tell you that's not effective. Um, Network building, on the other hand, really thinking intentionally about 
who has talent or gifts that you are going to need to be successful, where are our resources going to come from, and thinking about the world as a network, a series of dots that are connected in various ways, is really great. And so thematically, a government can help you think differently about networking and network building than we traditionally think about it. Uh, and that means recognizing the people that you are closest to and most deeply connected to through your church, your work, your school, whatever, what have you, but also those people who are not part of your community and not, not connected. And, and we miss those sometimes, right? Like if you go to church with the same people that you go to bowling league or golf with, or, uh, that are, are customers, you assume that that's the community. But if you take a 30,000 foot view, you realize, oh, I never see anyone under 25 or over 65. Mm-hmm. Like That's a big part of most of these smaller right. communities. And so there's that side. Um, the other thing I would say is just opening our eyes to the fact that connection is something that we over report in this region. We assume that everyone knows each other, which means that if you don't feel like you know each other, you feel even more disconnected. Like you're not part of the, you're not part of it. Right. Like, so if we talk about how Milbank is incredibly welcoming and so deeply connected, then if I'm the guy who doesn't feel like he has friends in Milbank, I feel like even more of an outsider. Mm -hmm. And so I talk a lot about collisions and connections needing to live in balance. And so collisions are, our first meeting, which was casual and, and, you know, had held no promise of a long-term friendship, but was, but, was yes. imp- but was important, right? It was yeah, important and, and led to a deeper connection mm-hmm. and relationship and engagement. Um, those things are important. The people who I just bought a diet Coke from across the street, like it's as important as the people that I'll spend, you know, the weekend hanging mm-hmm. out with. Um, and so I think those things are important, but actualizing those things has to happen one-to-one and has to happen, uh, in, in every family and, and community. I mean, I think that's, you know, I, my family just moved to a part of Sioux Falls in September. We'd been in a building. We'd been in a series of lofts downtown, very tight knit group of 12. Cause we're the only 12 families and residents <laughs> in the building and, uh, moved into this neighborhood. And I was a little concerned about it. And yet in the first weekend, we, I don't think we had actually purchased the house yet. I think we were just looking like neighbors are leaning over fences. Kids are coming over to play because they think we're moving in. Uh, this winter, I traveled a good deal and they were racing to blow out our snow. Like I went to thank one of the neighbors, Dave, who's, we've got great neighbors. And I thanked him for blowing out the snow and he goes, oh, no, no, no. Keith beat me to it this week. That's like, awesome. Keith, Keith, Keith took care of it. And it's like those small things yeah. that add 10 minutes of their time out in the blizzard mm-hmm. uh, uh, make people feel part of mm-hmm. community. I still don't know what Keith does in his spare time or what Dave, you know, where he goes to church, but I feel like they're neighbors and I feel connected right. to them. Yeah. I think that, you know, you're mowing your lawn outside and then the neighbor's doing it and you have a, you know, maybe it's a, a wave as you go by or you stop and have a brief chat. And that I, in my mind, that's where that, that begins yeah, and then it goes from there. And I, you know, the idea of the city as an, as a organization, as a, as a administration can set out some, some ideas maybe yeah, that can be grasped by, by every little community, but it is that, you know, it's that half block, it's the cul-de-sac, it's, you know, these two streets that we live on, you know, we're across behind our alley at our house. There are, there's two families and our kids are constantly bouncing. There's like the three houses that we're in. They're either at our place. Our kids are one of them. They're at the other one. And it's just this rotating. And it's it's awesome. 
you know, they'll jump on their bikes and they go up the alley. How cool. And on the other side of the alley, on the other side of the house is a park. And so I know that they're, they're within a radius of, you know, 1500 feet. And you can see, you can see that Mm -hmm. if you drive through a a neighborhood and you see it a lot more, I think in urban areas, but if you drive through a neighborhood and you see beautiful, but tall fences. And if you see one lawn neatly neat as a pin mode and the other one overgrown. And if you see, you know, people with their cars running in the grocery store parking lot, like you can make some of those judgment calls. Is this community safe and connected Mm -hmm. or is it not? And I think that we ignore those kind of silent, uh, indications. And that's not to say like, I'm very interested in building a privacy fence across the back of my yard, but the sides they're chain link and I want to keep them that way. And those neighbors, it's important that when I'm in the yard, they know I'm in the yard and we right. can chat. And, uh, you know, that Dave can look over and see that we've got the, the lumber that we have. <laughs> you, you don't want to be the hat peeking that's over right. the fence. <laughs> that's right. I love the fact that we cut some branches and, and Dave the next day was like, are you going to keep those branches or can I cut them up for fire? Really? Like, and I was like, you know what? I don't know. I'll talk to my wife. <laughs> uh, but I, I love, I love the fact that he's invested on some yeah. level, even if it's just that he needs some more firewood. Uh, it's he's invested in the fact that I'm there next to him. And mm-hmm. we had a chat about, about uh, how the previous uh, owner or landlord took out a bunch of bushes and it made more runoff on his lawn. And I said, well, you know what? We're doing some landscaping. Let me, you know, we'll bring that up when, when they come in. And of course they had a solution to it. Um, it it's the, that give and take mm-hmm. that, that builds the sense. It, it makes it harder for me, for us to leave. Yeah. Right. And, and I think the same thing is it makes it, if that's visible and if people have those stories to tell, if you told me a great story, I heard a great story today about, uh, about the community. Yeah. But if you told me a great story about the, the neighbor that jumped your car and got your wife to the airport, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you couldn't do it, it would make me feel more Millbank more accessible. It right. would make me feel more welcome here. Uh, even though I already have those, those sentiments. So to make you come back, we need to make your neighbors really <laughs> terrible. <laughs> your current neighbors. <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> no. It's definitely somewhere right. in the top because, ten tactics. <laughs> dang it! Now Amy knows the strategy. <laughs> uh, well, no, uh, I think I think I think Milwaukee just needs to to both be itself, but also remember how high its standards for itself are. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I think in and of that, that that's going to be a lot of it. But I think re reconnecting both internally and externally is important as well. You know, it, this is a weird aside, but I was having this conversation uh, in the last week when a college uh, has students come through, young people, they involve them deeply. They get them involved in extracurriculars. They hope to educate them. They um, give them uh, as much as they can of their faculty time. They, they do all these things to make them feel very at home there. And then they send them off. But when college students leave a college, they don't call it brain drain, right? They don't say like, oh, woe is us. Like our young people won't stick around. What can we do to get mm-hmm. them to stay? Like it's not a sign of success until much later when they come back as faculty members. Like if they're still lingering around two or three years after graduation, you've got a, you've got a problem. A issue. <laughs> you've got a problem. You don't have a thriving culture. Right. And I think too often we, uh, and I mean this as broadly small hometowns, we bemoan the fact that people don't. Um, that they leave when they're 18, but that's exactly what we've prepared, prepared them for. And in fact, what we have is we have an alumni body. And if you think about it, a hundred around a hundred kids a year out of Millbank, 
That means we've got thousands of alumni that both we should be tapping into for mm-hmm. resources. I get fundraising letters all the time from both of the colleges I attended. Interesting. Um, but also we should be bringing them back as alumni councils. We mm-hmm. should be looking to see which of them might be appropriate to bring back as faculty or business owners or, or you know, visiting speakers and scholars. Like, where are the opportunities to think about it, to change our thinking about what that is? Because I don't think all of us need to move back to Millbank for Millbank to be successful. If that's the case, it would be 15,000 people. And I think very few of us want that for Millbank. Mm-hmm. But where, where's the opportunity to think differently about the network that we have and how great it is that there are dozens of Millbank graduates in Sioux Falls and what riches and wonder can that bring to this beautiful little community in Northeast South Dakota? Just an aside. Just, just an aside. <laughs> well, I do, uh, I do appreciate your time and, you know, this, this conversation that we have begun today is going to continue with, well, with you. I mean, I'll continue to have you uh, back as often as you, as you will. (laughs) Um, But we are, you know, the goal with this, this little interview format is to go out and get both people from Millbank who are not here anymore and those that are still here and really just dig into who they are and what makes them tick, and at the same time, you know, dig into this idea of where that connection is and how how that can bring people to Millbank, um, or how it can help Millbank um, impact other little communities. Because yeah. the reality of the game, we can't have everyone come here. It's just I mean, that, that's that's just crazy to think. Right. But some we, of them could go to Marvin or Ravillo. Yeah, that'd be okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, big stone perhaps yeah. um but you know having that you know the the idea of of figuring out what it is that makes a community like Millbanks um successful and and long lasting yeah. because you know the train isn't the place it's not why we're here anymore right i mean right. it still goes through here but that's not why Millbank is here now it's an interesting conversation i do appreciate you coming in um this is the why Millbank podcasts um we will See you on the next one. Thank you much. Thank you, Craig.